So a lot of people are going through a difficult time right now. A lot of employees have been laid off from their jobs. We all know friends, family, everything who have been laid off. Every restaurant has essentially been closed, every bar, every clothing store, or a lot of retail outlets. So a lot of these small businesses have set up GoFundMe campaigns to help their employees survive this difficult time. I am collecting all those GoFundMe links. Please send me them. If you're an employee of one of these companies or ask one of these employees to send me the GoFundMe links and I am donating to each one that I'm getting and then I'm going to share the entire list. The best thing we can do now to not only help people, but even reduce our own stress is to be of service to others. This is one way among others that we could do it. So send me your links. I'll donate and I'll share the list of all the links that I get, but you could send me at altature at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to this podcast. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Myth procrastination is bad. Everyone always thinks, oh my God, I wasn't, I did nothing today. I wasn't productive. Like, you know, and, and, and other people are saying, you gotta, this time when you're home, you should be productive. Write that novel you always wanted to write. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We're already in the global pandemic and now you're giving me a homework assignment on top of that? Like that's, some people will write novels, but I don't blame the people who are just smoking pot and binge watching TV. Cause like, this is a stressful time. Yeah. You don't want to write a novel. Don't write, don't let other people shame you into writing a novel or starting a business. Yeah. Come, I've been, someone could, someone could just correctly say, I have been working for 38 years at Procter & Gamble. Give me a few weeks to just relax. Right. And smoke pot and watch Mad Men again. I don't know. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to regret afterwards that we just went through this momentous crisis and it doesn't matter whether it doesn't matter about policy it doesn't matter if there was an underreaction or an overreaction no matter what this has been this horrible crisis for people for the economy for healthcare and we don't want to go through this and look back and say man i what i just did not live up to my full potential during that crisis i hope in the next crisis i could do it but there might not be a next crisis like this and so, so I think, well, I just think for myself, I don't want to regret any of my actions or behavior during this time. I think it brings out the, you know, it, it brings out the person that you really are. Yeah. I think this virus, oh, like you that, said. That's totally true. Just helping people however you can. I mean, a lot of people don't have the money to give, but they, they'll give their themselves their time. Yeah. And I think, I think also you, there's a lot of, you can volunteer to have, uh, Skype conversations with the elderly who are isolated. Uh, there's also something called crisistextline.org, I think it's a .org, that you could sign up for where people could text you if they're really feeling, you know, in trouble in any way. Or, you know, we saw across the street, there was a restaurant that all the employees were laid off, so they set up a GoFundMe to help the employees. And, you know, you could give to GoFundMes of all your local restaurants and, and help out. I sort of feel that's better than waiting for the government to bail everyone out, communities should help each other. So I think community, whether or not it's going to become more important, it should be more important in this virus. This is when community 
should really come together when we're actually all isolated from each other. Right. No, it's true. I believe that too. Special episode of the James Altucher Show. We'll be talking about, of course, all things coronavirus, but specifically, I want to look at the 13 myths that have been kind of exposed by coronavirus. And I have with me today uh, my wife, Robin Altucher. Hello, Robin. Hello. And she's here just in case I make an ass of myself and you could ask me questions and poke holes in whatever I'm saying or make fun of me, whatever. But I'm gonna. It's it's easier for me to do a podcast when I'm talking to somebody. So I want to talk to you yes. and and have a conversation. But we're going to be talking about 13 myths that coronavirus has kind of kind of brought up about society. But before that, also I want to address, you know, what does it mean that we have 20 million people who have filed for initial unemployment claims and just kind of go through some of the data and arguments that we've seen this week before we get into all the myth busting or myth creating or whatever it is. But I also want to address a lot of people have said, like, I'll tweet something or, or Facebook something and, and people will say something stupid. Like, I think I better let, let the experts, I'm going to just trust the experts on this one. Let me just tell you something. There are no experts in this. Like there are people who might be epidemiologists, so they know about viral diseases like the other coronaviruses and SARS and MERS and now this one. There are people who are economists, and so they might have some thoughts about the economy. Although, uh, you know, economists, there are good ones and there are bad ones, just like there are good doctors and there are bad doctors. But also, you have to understand, we're in new terrain. No matter what a quote-unquote expert tells you, you should be skeptical. If I tell you something, you should be skeptical. Think for yourself in, in almost every situation. If someone tells you, oh man, your industry is going out of business, you know what? Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. It's up for you to decide how your life is going to change because of this. Or if people say, hey, you need to social distance and be 10 feet apart. That might be true. That might not be true. It seems to be social distancing or some form of lockdown seem to have worked, but we, but we, only, we don't have data. We don't have any data that suggests one thing or the other. This is one massive experiment we're in right now as a world. And there are things that are there are qualities of this experiment that don't make it very scientific. There's no control group, for instance. We, there's no country that has just said, okay, we're just gonna let everybody get infected and see what happens. I mean, the UK started off that way and, and now they're in more of a lockdown and, and actually uh, the virus has peaked. So maybe they did the, the lockdown too late. Maybe they did it just in time. We have no idea really. Now, in terms of me, I'm not an epidemiologist. I am not an immunologist, but, I I don't I don't want to call myself an economist because in general I don't really value the opinion of many economists. I value the opinion of some, but maybe two percent and not you know most of them. So so again, someone could have a PhD, someone could have been done, doing something for a career, but there's we're in new terrain. When when people say this time it's different, usually they're wrong. But this time it really is different. We've never had an economic shutdown like this before. We've never had such fear for so long in the news. Uh, you know, again, we've had pandemics before. We had swine flu, of course. That, I mean, we had, we had swine flu in 2009, which, you know, something like 70 million people around the world were infected. We had, 
you know, SARS, we had MERS, we had the very serious Hong Kong flu in 1967, we had the Asian flu in 1958, tens of thousands of people died, millions infected, and of course we had Spanish flu in 1918. So we've been through something like this before, but we've never shut down the economy, the whole world never acted in unison trying to find a cure, so that's something that's kind of special about this situation. But I want to say also what my interest is and involvement other than the usual. So, uh, of course, in, you know, we've, I've been an investor, I've been a professional investor through SARS and through MERS and through swine flu and through avian flu. And I've been a professional investor during 9-11, during the financial crisis. So there's elements that we're seeing now that are similar. And when I say I've been a professional investor, it means I was managing other people's money and I had to make very serious decisions based on the data I had. And I had to learn very quickly how to analyze what was going on in those different kind of moment by moment crisis situations. And it really was moment by moment, almost the same way this is, although this is much worse. The other thing is in 2011, I wrote a book, The Wall Street Journal Guide to Investing in the Apocalypse. The very first chapter was called pandemic with an exclamation point. It's the very first kind of apocalyptic event I was considering would happen. And I'm not saying I predicted this or anything. I, all I said was, I'll, I'll read you one, one aspect of it that I had thought I bookmarked. I said, in an actual, in an actual pandemic, there will be fewer lives lost than were initially predicted. That's what I wrote in 2011 in this book, first chapter that deals with uh, an apocalyptic situation. And that part, I will take credit that it happened here. The very first prediction I saw for the coronavirus was that 107 billion people were going to be infected, 2% fatality rate, 140 million people would die. As soon as I saw that, I knew that was ridiculous. We're nowhere. Obviously, that's, that, that's totally a fiction. I'm not even going to like address it anymore. Another thing that, uh, Another thing that I wrote in this, uh, which I can't find now, so I'll, I'll save it for some other time. But I just want to say that's a little bit my expertise, is that I've been a writer about this topic for many years. I wrote about SARS, I wrote about swine flu, and I even wrote a book writing about pandemics and how to invest in them in general. I've actually had to invest professionally in crisis situations, and I've written heavily. I was a regular on CNBC during swine flu, during the financial crisis, uh, I almost was too much involved. Like 9-11, I lived right next to the World Trade Center. During the financial crisis, I lived on Wall Street and I was appearing on CNBC all the time. And now New York City is the city with the greatest number of deaths in the world. This brings up a question, Robin. Do we even want to stay in New York City? I'm sick of being on ground zero in New York City. Like New York City is great in so many ways, but... I don't know. Where would you want to move if we don't live in New York City? I don't know. I mean, Puerto Rico. Why Puerto Rico? Um, Neither of us are Puerto Rican. Right. Uh, you don't have to pay taxes. Just very small percentage of taxes. Um, oh, hopefully like we'll make money sun. after this. It'll be like be an issue. Yeah. Uh, the sun. Um, I don't know. You're still in the U.S. But, I wonder how many, how many cases does Puerto Rico have of... This good virus. All right, you know what? Fortunately, we're right next to a computer. I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. But uh, I wanted to do this podcast without 
you know, last time I had Professor Scott Galloway. Before that, I had Tyler Cohen, an economist. Before that, I had doctors, immunologists, epidemiologists. Uh, I wanted to do something where I'm taking my own experience and expertise and applying it to this situation because there's a lot of topics that I feel I've been I've been doing these Instagram lives every day at 2 p.m. and I see the questions people are asking and it's fine like it's okay that people don't know a lot of these answers like what's going on with the stimulus what does it mean that there's so many people unemployed could there be hyperinflation if we stopped doing what we're doing will there be tens of millions of deaths I get it that people don't know the answers because why should they this is not what they've been doing this is not their jobs this it had was unexpected I don't want to say it was out of the blue uh, but I mean, we, as early as January, there was somewhat of, there was less panic in the investment world than I thought there would be, but, but it was clear that Wuhan was having a problem. China was shutting down their supply lines. I even wrote how it was a shame that we suddenly realized no other industry had a, a plan B. They were all doing their manufacturing in China, which I think that's going to change. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but right now I just want to see how many people are dying in Puerto Rico. So uh, in the past day, there's been two new deaths, which is sad. All deaths are sad. You always have to, next one of these phrases that you have to repeat after, after you talk about deaths. All deaths are bad, but we're just looking at the data now. So Puerto Rico has 897 total cases, uh, 44 deaths in total, and two deaths in total. So, okay, I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just, we don't know what the demographics of those people are. And that's another thing that's kind of interesting. There's kind of a lack of data. People will say, oh, there's X number of deaths in this country. But there's a lot of data that they're not sharing. They're not telling you how they define a coronavirus death. Is it somebody with coronavirus or someone who died of coronavirus? Meaning if they've just, if they have, if they're with it, but maybe they died from some other cause, it's a question whether that's a coronavirus death. So some of this data is not that useful. So I will say one data point that is useful, and it's it's a data point from today, which is right now in New York City, which has been the again the epicenter of coronavirus on the planet. Really, there are 53 new hospitalizations, down from uh, uh, about 10 days ago. There was a thousand new hospitalizations a day. It was it was horrific, and everybody was worried the New York City hospital system was going to be overwhelmed. But now with 53 new hospitalizations. It looks like not only did New York City peak around April 5th, as I mentioned on an IG Live in, in late March, that would happen, but we're almost kind of under control of the virus much faster than anyone thought possible. So we'll see if that trend continues. We don't know. The other thing is that I've been saying is that we should see a peak around in the United States in general around April 15th. Uh, Italy and Spain have already peaked uh, in Northern Europe. They're already getting back to work. The economy is reopening. You, the UK is starting to look like it's peaked. So, uh, you know, the one one thing I want to mention is, I well, we'll talk about this in the myths, but let's let's start off talking about unemployment because it's pretty scary. And I remember again around the internet recession slash nine eleven when suddenly there was a huge amount of unemployment, and then during the financial crisis and the Great Recession there was a huge amount of unemployment. But right now this unemployment just dwarfs 
any unemployment we've ever seen, even in the Great Depression, which was horrible. So something like, so far about 17 million people, I think that's right, maybe maybe more, maybe like 19 million people have filed initial claims on unemployment. But it's, and that's bad, but it's not as bad as it sounds. So because of the stimulus package, the rules of unemployment have changed. They were rewritten. And you wouldn't know this because the newspapers are only telling you, oh my gosh, 10 million unemployed, 6 million new unemployed. That's the headlines with an exclamation point. But they don't tell you the nuances of what's different. Why does this unemployment number, why does even the word unemployment mean something different now uh, than even just a few months ago? So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. And it's still bad. It's still record-breaking numbers. But, but it is different, and it's important to know the differences. First, many part-time workers are, are filing for unemployment. The stimulus package allows for part-time workers to file for unemployment. Second, a lot of self-employed workers. I don't know the exact conditions where self-employed contractors can file for unemployment, but there are a lot of people who file for unemployment are making a living already, but they're self-employed. Finally, a lot of the uh, people who are filing for unemployment are people who are furloughed meaning they were let go from their companies, they're not getting a paycheck, but as soon as the economy reopens, many of these people who are furloughed will go back to work, so if the company is still in business. So if a restaurant furloughed an employee and then the restaurant comes back, to opens up again on May 1st, then chances are it's going to hire back all the employees they furloughed. And it's important to note that the government is lending money to small businesses under the specific condition that you have to hire back the people you furloughed, or else you have to pay back the loan. And if you if, if you if you keep the employees on and keep paying them, you don't have to pay back the loan. It's 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 uh, gifted to you, or what is it called? It's forgiven. So this is important to realize: is that not only there's a lot of people unemployed that didn't used to be considered unemployed, but a lot of people will be rehired instantly. There's a, there's a ready and waiting um, and thriving potential economy as soon as uh, this reopens. Not every business is going to come back, not every employee is going to be rehired, but some percentage of those. Uh, the other thing that's really important to know is that employee, uh, unemployed people, anybody filing for unemployment is going to make more money than they ever have before under the terms of unemployment insurance. So the, usually the state figures out what your unemployment you know, number should be. So maybe you'll, in New York City, the average unemployed person gets $500 a week for 26 weeks. Well, the rules have changed. The government is adding $600 to that. So it's not going to be $500 anymore per unemployed person. It's going to be $1,100 per unemployed person in New York. Second, it's not 26 weeks anymore. It's 39 weeks. Now, they don't get the full $600 per week that the government's promising for the full 39 weeks. That's going to end at the end of July, although it'll probably be extended is my guess, but the 39 weeks is a big change and it's, it's different. The other thing, of course, is that everybody's getting a stimulus check. So adults are getting $1,200 per adult and kids are getting $500 per kid. And so this, and on top of that, again, I mentioned earlier, small businesses are getting loans. So I'm involved in many different businesses, which is another uh, point which I, I'm involved in every single industry from from oil to the food industry to tech, and I happen to own a small business, a retail store. It's a stand-up comedy club slash bar, 
And I can tell you that the loans are coming through. Like we got a loan. So, and, and we plan on hiring back employees. So many companies, there's 28 million small businesses eligible for these small business loans. There's, there's going to be so much money sort of dropping. This doesn't even count the normal stimulus that the Federal Reserve's doing. There's going to be a trillion dollars just dropped on the economy between the stimulus checks that every adult's getting and these small business loans used to rehire people, plus the surge in the economy we're going to experience when things reopen and people go back to work. So I just wanted to set the record straight on that because a lot of people have been just reading the media and I don't blame them. Everybody wants to be informed, but the media has its own agenda. They want to sell newspapers. They're not necessarily telling you all the information, like the finer nuances of what unemployment is. And this doesn't mean, don't worry, oh, everyone's going to be back to work. It's still significant, all these number of people filing for unemployment. It's just, it's just different. We don't really know what's going to be the outcome. But when you have the average unemployed person making more money than the average school teacher in the United States, things will happen. It's going to be a strange situation where money's fueling the economy, but not for the normal reasons. Like demand will pick up because everyone will have money, but it's not quite a functioning economy. No, no economy works if it's being totally uh, paid for by the government because economy works when people are making products and services and then the government makes money by taxing the, the, the people and the companies that are making the most products and the most services and that, and innovation happens from those companies. And that's how a government normally makes money. It's not the case that it doesn't go in reverse. It's not like the government has money, prints money and then hands it to people to, to spend. You need to create things. Uh, you know, healthcare wouldn't exist without the economy. Uh, food wouldn't exist without the economy. The government doesn't make drugs. The government doesn't make food. Companies do. Uh, biotech companies make new drugs. Right now there's 30 cures and vaccines uh, in trial for coronavirus, but that's 100% or let's call it 99% in the hands of private companies that are, have smart people working for them, working on these amazing cures and technologies and so on. And so it's not like the stimulus package is a stimulus for the economy. It's more like a band-aid for the economy. The economy right now is bleeding. It's a, it's a, it's a wo very wounded patient, but um, it's in a coma, in fact, because we've, we've quote unquote shut it down. And in order for this to re the stimulus to really work, the economy, we have to have a living, breathing patient that's on the road to recovery. So that's what happens when the economy is reopened, hopefully sooner rather than later. And I just want to say that, you know, a lot of people argue about, oh, well, they should never have shut down the economy or we should keep the economy shut down until there's no more deaths at all. And I want to say two things. One is there's a lot of argument and people say, oh, if you want, if all you want is the economy to open, you care more about the stock market than, than deaths. No, that's not true. You, the economy and healthcare are the same thing. Healthcare is part of the economy. Hospitals go out of business or, or, or go or stay in business. There's, there's a medical company right now. I won't say the name right now, but there's one major medical company that employs thousands of doctors. 
that is suffering because of this lockdown. So they had to cut the salary of doctors by 33% across the board. So doctors are feeling, the government is not paying the doctors. It's not buying um, all the healthcare equipment. A lot of it is being, again, run and, and dominated by private industry, including the hospital. So economy, healthcare, coronavirus, these things are all linked. And we don't know, like there were many countries that didn't shut down the economy. There were some countries that did shut down the economy. There were some countries that shut down parts of the economy. And even as we reopen, maybe we'll open it up in some states, or maybe we'll open it up for people under a certain age, or, or we'll certainly keep quarantined people who have the virus, and we'll certainly start testing more, and that will become a part of the economy, is testing for not only this virus, but perhaps other viruses, and there's all sorts of issues there, but we won't get into it now. But the economy has to come up at some point so we can have better health care. And the point of the lockdown is not to cure the virus. At least what the government has said to us and what everybody has said is that flattening the curve is important so that the healthcare system would not get overwhelmed by too many cases at once because there's only so many ICU beds in the country and in each city. So if we flatten the curve, do we reopen the economy? This is a decision that the leaders of the country have to make, but they have to do it with all of the information, not just what's the what's the coronavirus situation look like, but also what's the economy look like? Like the economy itself causes deaths or saves lives. So right now, here's an example. In Indiana, there's a hotline. You call 211 and it's like the mental health emergency. So normally in Indiana, a thousand people a day call 211 and have problems, including thinking about suicide. Right now, every day during this lockdown, 25,000 people a day have been calling that mental health hotline. And it's not because they have the virus, it's because they're unemployed or they're scared or there's so much uncertainty and so on. So, you know, and then we're seeing rises in child abuse, domestic abuse, uh, you know, and also we're seeing less car accidents, less pollution. So again, shutting down the economy has all sorts of effects, but it's not the normal state of affairs. You can't you can't continue what we're doing with the economy shut down forever. At some point, it has to reopen. The stimulus package, again, is a Band-Aid. It's not quite stimulus. And so I'll get into some of these um, myths uh, that, that I think is fascinating that the, uh, the virus has sort of exposed. But I want to point out two things. When we think about after every crisis, there's always a new normal. So as an example, after 9-11, traveling, we had a new normal. When you travel now, you have to take off your shoes. You have to take out your laptops. You go through a, a bomb x-ray machine. Uh, that was part of the new normal after 9-11. We were a little bit more nervous about, you know, terrorist or organizations in the Middle East. So, so that became part of our daily life. We we're, we're still have troops in Iraq, Afghanistan, and so on. So, and after the financial crisis, took a long time for people to feel comfortable investing in the market again. There was a new normal. So there's going to be a new normal here. Many industries are going to change. And I think there's two themes that's important to remember. One is the theme of remote. So whatever was not remote before is going to be more remote in the new normal. So work 
you, people would go to an office before. Now there will be more opportunities for flexible hours and working remotely and so on. Education, people, will, more people will learn remotely. Healthcare, more people will do telemedicine and teletherapy and AI will be involved more to help doctors in long distance uh, remote health situations. So anything you could think of where the word remote applies, that's going to be in the new normal. So watching movies, you probably won't go to a movie theater, you'll probably watch brand new movies uh, at home on the day of release. Like Disney will release in the movie theaters, but they will also release on Disney Plus. Uh, food, you probably won't go to restaurants as much. You know, remote food eating and remote grocery shopping, all these things are going to happen. The other word to keep in mind, the other theme that's going to happen in the new normal, keep in mind the word accelerate. So whatever you thought might happen in the world in five years is going to be accelerated. So if, if college was going to start to be a question, whether it was worthwhile, that's going to be accelerated after what, what we've seen happen with colleges in the past couple of months. Uh, uh, restaurants, if a restaurant was already on the fringe of going out of business, that's going to be accelerated. It's going to go out of business. If less people were going to theater, that's going to be accelerated and fewer people are going to go to the theater. So every theme is going to just be accelerated uh, from, from here on out. So there will be business models that will come up. There will be stocks that will be better buys now than they were before because of, of these themes of remote and of accelerating. And so it's just something to, to keep in mind. So I'm going to go through these myths one by one. And by the way, these are just off the top of my head. Feel free to disagree. I would love to hear your comments on Twitter or wherever, or send me email at altitura.gmail.com. Myth number one, which I've been writing about for years, so I was happy to put this down as a myth, is that the myth is owning a home will give you roots. And a lot of people own their home because they want roots. They want a place that they can't get kicked out of, that their kids could play and so on. But here's what's happened. Many people have left their homes during this crisis. In New York City, we're in our building right now, 90% of the apartments are empty because people didn't want to be in New York City. By the way, I don't think you can call yourself a true New Yorker if, you, if at the first sniffle, everybody like ran to the Hamptons or, or Florida, or, or I think those were the two most popular destinations. Um, so, but here's the thing too. People all over the country have stopped paying their mortgages, they've stopped paying rent, because there's this, there was this three-day moratorium, three-month moratorium on evictions. Well, what's going to happen when we all come back and these three months are over? And people, it's not like people have been saving the money for the three months. As we know, many people have been fired. They don't have the extra money to suddenly, oh yeah, here it is. I've been holding on to it in my piggy bank. Here's three months' rent. Good luck. No, I think a lot of people are just going to find out who the true owners of their homes were. It was either the, the bank or the landlord or the government, you know, if they were delaying state taxes. So I, I don't know. I think, I think owning a home is going to change and we'll see. People are asking me what's going to happen with residential real estate. I guess it'll bounce back eventually because people have to live somewhere, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't either. It's crazy. I don't think anyone knows. I mean, like I wouldn't be looking to, as soon as this is over, I wouldn't be looking to buy in New York City, for instance. No. But I guess if 
prices were to crash. I mean, prices were peaking in New York and in other parts of the country. I guess if the real estate market were to crash, I would consider because, you know, New York's, uh, you know, the financial capital of the world. But I don't know. I think there's going to be some volatility there. And I think the whole concept that your home is safe uh, is going to, people are going to realize, oh my gosh, I didn't pay rent or mortgage for three months and people are now knocking on the door who have the power to evict me. Yeah, it's scary. So it that really is. is. And and so again, it's one of these things where we don't really know what's going to happen on the other side of it, but it's something to think about as we go into this new normal. The second myth, which is another topic I've been writing about for years, so you can, maybe I'm an expert, but maybe I'm not. The myth is college is the best way to get an education. Well, here's what happened with college mid-semester for many young kids is that they got they were told to go home and again i'm not arguing whether that policy was correct or not uh you can argue it was correct so that they were would stop being around other people and would have less chance of being exposed you could argue it's incorrect because many kids moved back in with their older or even elderly parents and made their um parents or grandparents or whatever more susceptible to getting the virus so who knows? Probably it was a good policy. But colleges told people to go home and, and get out of their dormitories. They literally kicked them out of their dormitories, but didn't give them any money back. So they didn't, they didn't give them the rent back on these dormitories, for instance. They didn't give them any part of their tuitions back, even though the education is much different. It's not what people paid for. And there's even class action lawsuits now happening against many colleges because, I mean, how can you kick someone out of their dorm rooms and for many people that was their, was their homes they didn't necessarily have a home to go to so they have to now pay rent elsewhere but how can you kick people out of their dorm rooms and not refund part of the rent it's kind of right. kind of horrible it what is. happened it really is a lot of these kids are foreigners too so yeah what would you do go back to their country i mean we know a case in england where they were yeah. um you know where england also has closed down all the schools right. and we know at least one person or two people who couldn't get back to their home countries and they're kind of stuck. Right. And so they either stay with, you know, living with friends or living with boyfriends and maybe in situations that they wouldn't have been comfortable doing, but now they're forced to do. Right. And so I think people are going to be, and we, we're talking from the perspective of, you know, we have, we have one kid in college. We have uh, one kid who's dropped out of college. Uh, we have one kid who's probably not going to go and two kids who are seniors in high school. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at this from every angle and I think everything's kind of up in the air. We don't really, A, we don't really know if college is going to reopen in September. At least in New York City, it's looking like it's not going to reopen, at least for the first month, uh, uh, but probably for the whole semester, we'll see. But then you have to ask, is it worth paying or borrowing 60, 70,000 a year when they can, there's really good courses online like i was talking to my daughter earlier who she studied acting in college she left college because better to actually act than than you know be in the middle of nowhere and study it in a very small theater department she came to new york city she's been involved in theater here but i suggested her take a look at some of these class like, like masterclass.com you know there's a class by helen Mirren. Uh, was great actress. There's a, another class by Natalie Portman, another class by Samuel Jackson. It's like wow. real actors and actresses uh, teaching classes. Yeah. And so that's could be just as good as whatever you would learn sure. in college. So I wonder how many subjects like that are there 
And anyway, I, we again, we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know some colleges are going to be in financial trouble, so they're going to have to deal with that. Some colleges are not going to be able to charge as much in tuition. Some colleges are going to be in trouble because they're being sued. And some colleges, people are just not going to want to go back to. So will, will colleges end up reducing tuition? Will colleges end up partnering with corporations like Google or, or Amazon, like you know Professor Galloway suggested on my podcast last week? Will colleges become subscription so that MIT, instead of having 3,000 students, they'll have 100,000 students taking their online courses, but at a lower rate and you know ongoing? So we'll, we'll, you don't really need a f four years to complete a degree. Uh, Scott Young, who's been on my podcast, he's the author of the book, Ultra Learning. He took MIT's online courses and he finished a four-year computer science degree in less than one year. He took all the tests, had everything graded, uh, did all the homework, finished in a year. And a lot of people said, oh, well, but you, didn't, you don't have a degree. And to that, a lot of people responded on different message boards uh, I'd rather hire Scott than someone who got the degree because uh, he had the initiative to get this entire degree for free instead of spending two hundred thousand dollars or more. Right. So that's great. Yeah, very smart guy. Um, so myth number three. Uh, this these next two myths and or three myths got a little more controversial because I think people didn't understand what I was saying. But uh, you know, the myth is that when you're married, finally you're not alone. And what we're seeing now, though, is all these married couples um, are kind of been forced to just spend all day, every day with each other in small, medium, big houses, and they've had to interact with each other in ways that maybe they haven't since they first started dating. And I don't know if this is true or not, but this is just anecdotally. I'm hearing from divorce lawyers, they're getting more calls than ever. Like, so I don't know what that means. Maybe once this lockdown's over, people will go separate from each other for a little bit or get divorced or, or it won't matter anymore. They'll, 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 they'll be happy and, and cheerful because, you know, this is very stressful this time too. So that might, must put a stress on couples that are with each other all the time. Right, right. How do you think we deal with it? Like we've been together all the time. Right. But we're always together. So we yeah, were we were together, together before, before then. So we definitely, I think. And I was getting kind of sick of you before, but. <laughs> no. Uh, no, so it's easy for us because it's that's our normal, you know. But with other people, they're used to working away from the house or, you know. Yeah, they're, they're used to spending like maybe 12 hours a day apart right. from each other. Right. And, and then maybe mostly on weekends, mm -hmm. spending some time together or date night or whatever. Right. So I think maybe now they're, you know, people change in life and. I think now when they're so close to each other again every day, they're seeing how they've changed and they might not like it. But again, the extra stress of this quarantine is probably hurting marriages. So maybe when that's over, the cost of divorce lawyers will, will go down. I don't know. And plus they have kids now, the ones that have the young kids, they're all home as well. Yeah. Oh, people are sick of that. <laughs> I have. Well, that's my next myth. My next myth is having kids is the purpose of life. And now people thought that... You know, I posted this on Twitter and people were like, oh, you don't respect family. It's not that. Uh, people are people have, are not used to taking care of their three-year-old, their four-year-old, their five-year-old every single day and then schooling them and, you know, just watching them. You know, parents are used to going to work and the kids 
or go to school, seven year olds, eight years old. And now the parents have to watch them, educate them, discipline them, you know, keep them, keep their life structured. So it's very difficult. And I don't, bl I, we have five kids, but I don't blame people for not having kids because it's hard work. Don't have kids if you don't want to have kids. Exactly. Oh, well, we have a ton of kids. And you know, they're <laughs> Glad all, they're all older, though. They're all over the place. <laughs> and they're petri dishes of germs. We've probably both got coronavirus <laughs> yes. from our kids. So, I mean, look, kids are great. Kids are amazing. But when they're constantly with you, I mean, would you ever, here's the thing. Would you ever willingly be best friends with a seven-year-old? <laughs> you know, like if you're 40 years old, if you're 50 years old, would you ever say, you know what? I'm going to call up my best friend who's seven years old. No, that would never happen unless you were a weirdo. And yet if you have kids, you're, this seven-year-old human being kind of is your best friend. You know, so it's like a, an odd situation, uh, but it's acceptable for, you know, limited amounts of time. But they're not, they don't want to hang out with you all day either. <laughs> they're right. missing their friends. Right. They want to go to the playground at school. And and you're not allowed to you're not even allowed to play outside you know in most in most cases you don't you're technically not supposed to leave your home unless it's for essential business yeah. so it's like all these old people who sit around all day anyway are trying to tell us stop going outside stop playing stop going in the sun stop going outdoors with your kids trying to stop you from everything healthy during this health crisis but right. it's it's difficult but right. in any case hopefully you have more purpose to your life and more meaning to your life than just having kids because the you know again we're seeing a lot of and this is anecdotal so i don't know if it's true but we're seeing a lot of instances of people saying doctors saying they're getting or law enforcement saying they're getting calls about uh child abuse and so on but who knows uh and then uh i'll skip this next one i say the myth is your family is your family but as we all know if, you, if there's someone toxic in your family, you know, the family you're born with is not necessarily the family you die with. If there's someone toxic in your family, you're not obligated to spend time with them or give them your precious energy. But now you are obligated because this lockdown has forced all these families together and sometimes is very painful. Uh, another myth is, uh, and, and this is kind of underlined in this lockdown and in a weird way, but everybody always says to me, hey, don't you have to be dishonest to be successful? Isn't that, like, aren't it, you know, a lot of people think that the big, rich capitalists are all dishonest. And, and whether or not that's true, and I don't think it's true, maybe it's true sometimes, but I think reputation is so important for success that it's hard to be uh, dishonest or, or do things illegal if you really want to have good, consistent success over decades. But right now, there's no such thing as money. We're just sitting around the house. We don't buy anything except uh, once a week we'll buy order food delivery so we can have meals during the next week. And, and, and really, the people who are successful right now are the ones who are able to deal with all this massive uncertainty, which is something that humans don't like to normally deal with, that our, our ancestors did not like... The, our cavemen ancestors did not like to deal with uncertainty. If they saw the, the trees rustle in the distance, they either, they would just assume the worst case scenario and they would run. The, the, the 
cavemen or whatever who didn't run because they thought, oh, no, it's nothing. It's just, it's probably 99% is just wind rustling through the leaves. They eventually got eaten by the one in a thousand chance that it was a lion and they're not our ancestors. So our, so uncertainty is part of our genetic, you know, avoiding uncertainty is part of our genetic makeup. And now that everything is so uncertain in this environment where it's difficult for us, we're, we're, there's stress through the roof. Again, in Indiana, I mentioned there's 25,000 calls a day versus 1,000 calls a day on their mental health hotline. And it's all because of this massive uncertainty. So success right now is means, and you can, you can step back and ask yourself, am I doing okay in terms of dealing with uncertainty? Am I not trying to find certainty where there is none? Am I, am I, even though it's anxiety producing and stressful, am I riding this wave of uncertainty in the best way possible? Am I keeping myself healthy? Am I not engaging in massive arguments on Twitter or with family? Or am I still being creative when I can? Am I not obsessing on things I have no control over? Uh, I don't know, like how, how are you, well, how are you dealing with uncertainty? Well, the thing is, is I think uncertainty makes you live in the now or makes you live the moment because you really can't plan anything because you just don't know what's in the future, yeah. really. So how can you plan something when you're just, you don't know really what it's going to be like. So it really does put you in your place at the moment and you live moment by moment, which really is healthy to do anyway, but we're just not used to doing it. I think you're doing it better than me. I think I've gotten so mired in, you know, all the specific data and the economy and data about the virus and then finding the right experts to talk to about all this. And then, you know, finding the right crew of experts to have on my podcast. I've been kind of like neck deep in the uncertainty to the point where I feel almost buried. But yeah. I think through it, hopefully, it's it's teaching me to to deal with it. I haven't haven't really gotten depressed, but I certainly felt yeah. anxious during this time. I mean, I think you you just sort of um, you just you have to really be uh, very grounded in yourself and know what your ability is at any stage of your life right i mean so understanding that your capability in whatever situation you're going to be in so i've lived in a lot of different situations and you lived in ghana which you must have been yeah. chaotic every day you've lived in china you lived right. in kuwait every yeah every day was different when you wake up but um i just i feel like you just have to just be very grounded in in and know who you are and just have faith in yourself really that that you're going to be able to have a you know cope with whatever comes you know towards you and you just have to prepare for that and you have to be like water i guess you can't you know going down that river of life you don't want to break you want to be able to bend through these you know uh through the you know the the curves of the river and and if you uh, if you're too, if you're not malleable, you're going to break. You, you really will. And, and that's when you're in big trouble. So you yeah. have to really go with, you know, with the power that you, you have. I think it also helps 
in a situation where you're very focused on yourself, like in these, you know, I, it's called isolation because in part you're just with yourself and your close ones. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that's helped me is trying to be of service to others. Like we volunteered that one time or twice at the food lines or whatever. And, um, uh, you know, we've done other things. So, uh, I don't know. I'll go on to the, the next one. But just on the family thing, by the way, did Prince Harry and, and Meghan, did they actually move out of, are they, are they, are they isolated with, are they all like the Queen and Prince Charles and Camilla and Harry and are they all like, and William and Kate, are they all like living in a little apartment in Buckingham Palace and isolated? Oh, I don't know. Can you imagine like he quit his family and it's like, oh no, get back in, you're isolated now. Where is, where are they? I have I have no idea. Don't you keep track of no, Megxit? No, I, I don't. <laughs> oh my God, what's happening with Megxit? <laughs> I should get Prince Harry on the podcast. Uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't say yes. He would be like, "I'm not doing that." Uh, myth: Giving to charity means you are charitable. So I always thought this was interesting that if you don't, you know, the, a charity is like a legal entity, and and being charitable means you're a giving person. So I always think it's, it's people are wrong to say businesses are business and charities are charity. Like there are now businesses that are making these cures for coronavirus. No charity is making a cure. Businesses are. Right. So are you charitable if you invest in one of those businesses? People would say no. But what if the business you invest in that couldn't have survived without your investment, what if they come up with a cure for something, for coronavirus or whatever? It seems like Yes, you're going to make money on it, but does that mean you weren't being charitable? You also took risk. You might have lost money on it. Right. And, you know, we in, in all the things that we've done the past few weeks, none of them was to an official charity, as far as I know. And yet we did charitable things, whether it's donating time or money. So I think, I think giving is more important than the actual legal entity that you're giving to. Sure. And it's not just money either. I mean, yeah, it's time, time or energy or, or thought, right, or creativity. Thought and uh, just helping people however you can. I mean, a lot of people don't have the money to give, but they, they'll give their themselves their time. Yeah. Know? And I think, I think also you, there's a lot of, you can volunteer to have uh, Skype conversations with the elderly who are isolated. Uh, there's also something called crisis text line dot org i think it's a dot org that you could sign up for where people could text you if they're really feeling you know yeah. in trouble in any way so there's lots of ways to uh, you know or or you know we saw across the street there was a restaurant that all the employees were laid off so they set up a gofundme to help the employees and you know you could give to gofundmes of all your local restaurants and, and help out i sort of feel that's better than the government or, or waiting for the government to bail everyone out communities should help each other. So I think community, whether or not it's going to become more important, it should be more important in this virus. This is when community should really come together when we're actually all isolated from each other. Right. No, it's true. I believe that too. And you know, you know, people deliver groceries to the elderly. Isn't that? Right. Lily does that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have one kid who's who's doing that. Um, unfortunately, all five kids aren't doing that, but. Yeah, but I mean, pe people are lonely, and there's a lot of people that live um, by themselves. I mean, even here in New York, I mean, when we would go out, only people we'd see walking around were the elderly. 
because they have nobody to help them. So they're the ones that are out at the grocery stores. You know, it's it's really sad because um, they have no choice. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that are lonely and giving your time is much harder than just giving money. I, I think putting Absolutely. your time into into uh, people is is really a great thing to do. And and. You know, you see these elderly people like we were walking past one and and she was saying six feet, please, six feet. And so she was scared all the time of getting sick. Like she was saying that to everyone and people are scared and people don't have all the information. You know, for instance, the fact that there was only 53 hospitalizations in New York City yesterday versus 10 days ago, there was a thousand hospitalizations. It does mean that the virus is at an end in New York City, it seems, who knows, but it seems, at least it's better than having a thousand hospitalizations. And it does mean that the rate of infection could be going down very, very fast. Because if someone was hospitalized today, it means they got infected 10 days ago. So if infections are going down every day, that means 10 days, I mean, if, if hospitalizations are going down every day, it means 10 days ago, infections were going down, which means today, maybe there's no infections happening. We don't know. We'll see. I hope I hope that's the case and maybe some of these elderly people could come out or, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to regret afterwards that we just went through this momentous crisis and it doesn't matter whether, it doesn't matter about policy, it doesn't matter if there was an underreaction or an overreaction, no matter what, this has been this horrible crisis for people, for the economy, for healthcare, and we don't want to go through this and look back and say, man, I, wa- I just did not live up to my full potential during that crisis. I hope in the next crisis I could do it, but there might not be a next crisis like this. And so, so I think it's very important that people, well, I just think for myself, I don't want to regret any of my actions or behavior during, during this time. Of course, yeah. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Uh, let's see. I think it brings out the, you know, it, it brings out the person that you really are. Yeah. I think this virus, oh, like you said, you know, it's. That's totally true. Like I've seen people who, you know, suddenly became like massive just dicks through this because they couldn't. Uh, they couldn't. They were so anxious, I guess, or it, it brought out the worst in them. And then other people became really great, like compassionate people. And it was interesting to see who rose to the task. You're learning. I'm learning a lot about people. And and by the way, there's so many people I've just been disappointed with, like seeing how they're acting and seeing, you know, what, you know, how they're arguing, you know, on social media or whatever. Like people are are, you know, we're definitely seeing an uglier side. Right. Uh, so uh, another myth I have, and this one people always contest, but the myth is we need to vote to change the world. Now, I haven't voted since forever. I've, I've never voted in a presidential election, actually. And I've voted maybe twice before. Once for, in 1991, there was a, an off election year election for a senator, and I voted for Harris Wofford, the Democratic candidate against Dick Thornburg for senator. And I voted in a little town called Cold Spring for city council. 
And two days after that I voted, I got a letter from the IRS. So I don't like, I think voting, is, I think it's all connected, like all these different agencies. But people think it's very important in a, in a democracy to vote because how are you going to have a say in how the country is run? And I just think that's BS because anybody, everybody has a platform. We have, you, you have your family, you have your friends, you have your actions. Like if you are, do charitable things or giving things, you'll have more of a platform than otherwise. If you create things, you'll have more of a platform than otherwise. Voting is like the least capable way yeah. of influencing society particularly like new york state let's say you're a republican your vote doesn't count let's say you're a democrat your vote doesn't count the democrats will win in new york state and that's fine california they'll win you know there's only what one friend of us was telling us uh the other day or a couple of weeks ago there are only eight states that really are in question for a presidential election and of those eight states probably only three hundred thousand people matter so those three hundred thousand voters are the only ones who should vote. The other 300 million people, their vote doesn't really count that much. So you need to do other things like do research, write books, you know, be a, be a part of your community and then you can impact society. You know, everyone will, I've lost friends because I say, oh, I don't like to vote. When I, you, there's so many other ways. I write books, I, I do this podcast, there's so many other ways to, to have an impact. You, you can help people. That's right. No, I agree with that. Have you ever voted? Did you vote when you were when you were living no. overseas? Did you vote mail-in vote? No, I didn't. You didn't at all. Mm -mm. So the overseas vote did not include you. Did not include me. It now, did include my late husband. So this is uh, oh yeah, he voted. Mm -hmm. Now this is the first election. All this is the first presidential election. All five of our kids could vote. Last presidential election, none of them could vote. Right. So, who are they all going to vote for? We have no idea who they're going to vote for. Right, we don't. So I know they, they, you know, like like most people, I don't know, they're conflicted about both candidates. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to get into politics here. So <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a stairway to hell. So you can't talk about politics either because I felt like here's in 2012, I thought you could talk about politics. Like there was Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney. And yes, some people were polarized like, only Barack, only Mitt Romney. But a lot of people I was talking to, they were really looking at the issues. What did Mitt Romney stand for? How was he on healthcare? How was he on pro-choice? How was he on, um, you know, monetary policy? What's Barack like? You know, what do they think of tax? So there was a real debate of ideas, I thought. And they were both very intelligent people. And now it's just a cluster F. Yeah. Like, it's just a mess. Yeah. No, it's true. It's terrible it and really and everybody's just so angry like that's why even the there was so much partisanship even around coronavirus so like oh if xyz is the cure you, you're not it's no longer the cure because trump said it or if if oh. fauci says something don't listen to that guy he's a democrat like you can't terrible. bring politics into a global pandemic that's like uh it's really disappointing yeah but that shows me that for me, it shows me that nobody is really has stepped up to the plate to be a real leader. You know, maybe they're trying their best, but I kind of think some people are not trying their best on purpose because they have their own agendas. Right. But that's another story. Yeah. Um, myth: procrastination is bad. Everyone always thinks, "Oh my God, I wasn't. I did nothing today. I wasn't 
productive. Like, you know, and, and, and other people are saying, you gotta, this time when you're home, you should be productive. Write that novel you always wanted to write. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We're already, this is a global pandemic and now you're giving me a homework assignment on top of that? Like that's, some people will write novels, but I don't blame the people who are just smoking pot and binge watching TV. Cause like, this is a stressful time. Yeah. You don't want to write a novel. Don't write. Don't let other people shame you into writing a right. novel or starting a business. Yeah. Come. Like I've been. Someone could. Someone could just correctly say I have been working for thirty-eight years at Procter and Gamble. Give me a few weeks <laughs> to just relax. Right. And smoke pot and watch Mad Men again. I don't know. Like, why is everyone like such a uh, uh, productivity like blah blah? You know. Oh, you have to do this, or you're way. You didn't really want to write a novel. If you, you've been claiming you wanted to write a novel all along. You, you didn't if you're not doing it now. Shut up. See, it's so much, there's so much judgment, really, with everything. Yeah. Like people, just let people do what they want to do. Don't shove your narrative down their throat or whatever narrative you're going, you know, to, uh, you know, to uh, represent or or have, I think people should just be able to think for themselves. Yeah, and I and and, and you know also don't criticize them. It's not like don't it's, shame it, them. It feels like there's different phases to this lockdown. Phase one was when every single day there was a new set of restrictions. The stock market was collapsing every single day. There was so much uncertainty. We didn't know if deaths would continue exponentially in the US forever until everybody was dead. I mean, if you, if you if you went with some of the exponential models that people had in the beginning of this, that PhDs and scientists and these so-called experts had, if the first case in, in, in the US was like in February, we would have four quadrillion cases by now. Like, like yeah. this was a really uncertain time. So that was phase one of the lockdown when the uncertainty was, was king. And then phase two, I feel is sort of now where we're seeing a little bit of the light at the end of the tunnel. We're understanding that this might peak, but we don't know when the economy will reopen. Although, you know, there's indications it might soon. Uh, Texas just, the governor of Texas just announced he wanted to fully reopen. And, um, and then there's arguing around that. But I feel this is phase two. And then phase three is as we slowly reopen and we start to figure out what it means. And there's going to be some isolation but not total, and we'll see. But in any case, procrastination is not bad. Do whatever the hell you want. Don't let other people tell you what to do. Even I, after a minute, I was guilty of saying, hey, now's the time to be creative. Like, it's just, I was, I was spouting off bullshit because, again, I don't like being told that. I don't want, I, I gave up on homework a long time ago. I mean, I think actually the best thing to do and, and the most fun is to experiment on things to experiment doing things because, you know, you don't have to accomplish anything, just experiment to see if there's something that you enjoy because a lot of people don't have the time to do that. So that, this is really a great time. To that is such a great point. Like I've been experimenting for the first time with making TikTok videos. Yeah. So, you know, just <laughs> becoming a TikTok expert, like all, all the, the Bob our five kids, four our daughters. So they're all TikTok experts and I'm catching up to them. Um, although they're a little bit envious of the number of followers I have on TikTok already, but, uh, so, but yeah, you're, you're totally right. If, if you want to write something, experiment with writing something. If you want to, you know, we were playing around with making a new game, 
we've been playing around with the the podcast a little bit. There's all sorts of experiments we've been doing. So I've learned new apps. I've learned new yeah. You've been killing it with the technique. I mean, so it's really I have the time where I can just sit down and like play with all that stuff, and I could take a little course, you know, on YouTube or online about something. What are you gonna take a course on? No, I said I could. I know. What, what would you? Bird training. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You you want to get a bird? You want to get a cockatoo? <laughs> Is yeah. that how you say it? A cockatoo? Yeah. Uh-huh. Cockatoo. What's the difference between a cockatoo and a parrot? Uh, well, one's a parrot and one's a cockatoo. But they both speak, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is the cockatoo speak? I never even heard of a cockatoo before you showed me <laughs> this weird cockatoo that was like saying, shouting curse words. It sounded like a human. I know. It's eerie. I don't believe you that it knows what it's saying. I think it's just repeating it. It's just parroting. What it heard. Well, it is, but they're actually, they, they use, you teach them things, you know, like, that is, you know, food, or that is a bed, that is your cage. And then they'll say, I want to go to cage. And then you say, okay, go to cage. Wow, that is yeah. creepy. They can, like the cockatoos. The cockatoos, they can speak up to 50 words. Really? Yeah. They've measured that? Yeah, they have. But they don't know what the words mean. Or maybe well, they, they do. do. Yeah. They're very intelligent. They say they're more intelligent than dogs. Well, I can believe that. A dog, a dog's an idiot. A dog, you could just pretend to throw like a frisbee and it's supposed to go fetch it. But like, like it'll go fetch a frisbee if you throw it or a ball or like a tennis ball. If you throw a tennis ball, it'll go fetch it. But I could just pretend to throw the tennis ball and not actually throw it. And it'll run across the room looking for it. Then it'll come back and then I'll pretend again. And it'll run again. It'll do it again and again and again. It'll never stop the dog. And, You're not and, allowed to train the bird, okay? And and here, <laughs> here's where I just want to say the one area where a dog is like better than a little baby because a baby is really like what like okay they're cute for a second but they're like they don't speak English they don't they just want like your breasts basically the entire time and, but here's where a dog wins is that I can go let's say I go where I want to see for whatever reason the lion king on broadway it's like a three-hour play i could take a dog and tie it to a pole for the entire three hours and come out and nobody will be upset at me if i tied a if i tied a baby to a pole for three hours that would be against the law so that's where a dog is because the dog won't mind dog will just be happy to see me at the end of those three hours yeah dogs are so cute animals are so cute in general and now since i've married you i have a dog yeah. I've never had a dog before. Bird. Yeah, and then and I'm going to have a bird. Five kids. Wow. And five kids. <laughs> I think sign me up for death. Can you just grab my phone is ringing. Let's see if we should answer it or not. Oh, it's Jay Yao. Jay, we're doing the podcast right now and we're going to send it to you in like 15 minutes. Okay, cool. Thank you. Okay, keep this part in it. Don't edit this out. They're going to know they're going to know how real podcasts are made. <laughs> <laughs> at night when then I email it to you. Okay, bye Jay. Uh, okay, next myth. Uh, people, a lot of people say, oh, I don't need that much sleep. I'm really productive. I've known a lot of people like that. And, but sleep turns out to be really necessary. Like everybody, the, the one piece of advice every doctor has given me is sleep eight hours. If you don't want to get, if you want to fight, if you want to boost your immune system and fight this virus, sleep for eight hours. Yes. But do you think, do you think some people, like a lot of people claim that they have a, a special ability to only sleep for four hours. I do think some people seem to have that gene. No, I don't. 
I just think that they're that they're just conditioned for it, but their body still needs it. Yeah, I mean, we're all the same. But I've known people who are like really energetic and they sleep four hours a night. It's all fake. You know why the grass is greener on the other side? Yeah. Because it's fake. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's good. All right. Well, I don't believe it. I think I think some I think one percent of, of society and I'm saying that with no basis at all, but one I think some small percentage have it. Um okay, this is an interesting one. Uh people think that they're smarter now than humans forty thousand years ago. And I actually think people are much less intelligent now than 40,000 years ago. And all you have to do is just go on Twitter every day and you'll see <laughs> right. how, how little intelligence the average member of society right. has. It's kind of scary. Right. But, but, and you know, we all take for granted all these amazing things in our life. But if you threw me back in time, I wouldn't know how to make a light bulb. Or I would, like if, like there's this book, there was this novel, you ever read Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court? By, by Mark Twain, and this guy goes back in time from the 1800s to King Arthur's court, and he sets up a phone system, and he makes these weapons. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do anything. What am I, I, what am I gonna do back in King Arthur's court? They're just gonna kill me. Like, I'm gonna, I mean, I'm, first off, I'm gonna need glasses. Like, what, I'm not gonna be able to see, okay? And then, and then, I don't know, I'm gonna be weaker than all these knights, or all these serfs, or whatever. <laughs> Like what am I gonna be a knight at the round table? I can't. I can't hold a lance or ride a, a horse. But so so I, I I like and you know we all say like oh my god the some people still think the world is flat like and that does seem like if you're if you think the world's flat it does seem kind of stupid but if I went back let's say a thousand years ago I want to be able to prove that the Earth was round. Right. And everyone would say to me, would be laughing at me, you think the earth is round? Well, why aren't we falling off of it? Like, if you're on the other side, why aren't you falling off? Like, there wasn't gravity. Nobody knew about gravity then. How would I prove gravity? Like, right. would you, how would you prove that the earth was not flat? I know you asked me that before. And you still can't. I gave you, I gave you a three-month head start on that question. <laughs> and you still can't. But I don't blame you. I mean, you can say, well, I can't see past the horizon, but so? It's far away. You can't see past it. Right. You know, like, it doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, it does mean that the Earth is curved, but maybe it's only curved a little bit. I don't know. I guess you could climb, you know, the, the, the let's see, one of the mountains, Mount Ararat in Iran, or one of the really tall mountains, and you can maybe see something, right? Do I don't know if you can see, you know, the, cur the curve, curve is very subtle, so, you know, it's a big planet. Yeah. I don't know if you could, I don't know if you could prove it. It's not so, not so easy. So anyway, but right. there, there's nothing else. And here, here's the reason why I specifically say 40,000 years ago. So that this was around the time, apparently, of the invention of fire. So, you know, humans were starting to get a little bit smarter than their ancestors before them. And they were starting to organize in, in larger groups than just tribes. But also the average, because we were hunter-gatherers, the average human knew within a five-mile radius of wherever they were, every piece of food, every plant, what was edible, what was poisonous, every predator, where were the lions, where were the other tribes, every place where they could sleep or escape if they were chased. And they were nomadic, so they would have to relearn all of these things. 
and and their memories must have been huge to remember where everything was so they knew where to hunt where right. to gather and how to make food like, like you ever think like i don't know like i don't know what's something weird like even corn like they would see these weeds why did they think if they just pulled apart these weeds and then cook it that they'd have something edible well, they corn. probably saw the animals eat it but the whole thing is is like They're i think than I, I think though back back if you if you think about it the animals like like wookie our dog she goes and she sits in the sunlight every day okay she's smart i mean because she's she but she's just right she's getting her vitamin d that's right we we, we take vitamin d that. supplements because we sit in front right. of the tv all right. day long we don't go in the light right so it's like if you really look at the nature of you know uh, animals and you see their behavior because they they are using their instincts we should use our instincts we used to use our instincts but we don't anymore because society has really you know taken all of those away uh, really right, because so it's like if you want to do something no the professor from harvard says you should do this and you're like oh okay i should do that i shouldn't really do what i think is right you know they do this with raising kids and 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 how you should treat your baby i mean really i think society has really done a you know has not done much for us except you know cured you know a lot of the diseases well, and that's what why you know we're living longer but if we had that plus we live with our instincts i think we'd live a lot longer yeah imagine if instead of all of the political infighting which is really kind of harmed the entire planet during this period like just the infighting in the united states has harmed the entire planet and and again i'm not saying which policy is right which is wrong it's just probably it's all messed up because everyone's just been arguing and i don't know people have just been more intelligent about how we do things but then again we do have light bulbs we do have cars we do have computers we do have all these amazing things created by all these intelligent people uh and you couldn't create these things back then. I'm just saying I would have been useless back then, and I'm not even that much more useful right now. Like it's only a small percentage of society that really moves forward the innovation in society, and maybe that's kind of an indicator to people where they can find meaning in their lives. Like, in, not necessarily in tech. It doesn't have to be technology, but where could they move forward the frontier of society? In you know, even, even if you're a, a musician. Can you can you do music that's innovative and and moves the needle? Can you uh, if 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 you're a creative, can you whatever your area is, can you push society forward a little bit? Maybe that's how we are supposed to use our intelligence now. I don't know, but just a balance of it, right? I, mean, I just I, it's just amazing to me. Like if you state a, no matter what opinion you state on social media, either you're going to be called a fascist or a libtard, and that's just going to be the response. No one. Very few people are going to say, "Oh, yeah, that's changed. That's smart. That's changed my mind." So I think, so so doing that in reverse, I think actually the smartest thing you could do is say, "I don't really know something," and learn and be curious and be open-minded when someone says something. And I think we all have our issues where we feel like it's either this way or no way. But I think it's a challenge, an interesting experiment, as you put it earlier, an interesting experiment to not have such forceful opinions, no matter what it is. Right. So no, and that's how you can grow, and and I think that if people listened more and 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 spoke less, I mean, I think this world would be a much 
nicer place to live in. Yeah, are you saying that because I've spoken for ninety nine percent of this podcast? No. If you, <laughs> another way to say it is, if you had spoken a little bit less and let me speak a little no. bit more, this room would be a nicer no. place to sit in with you. But it's just, it's this. People should should trade ideas, and it shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be so hard headed, you know, in, in learning and listening to other people's ideas. Yeah. So, which brings me to the next myth, and this is the one that actually was pretty controversial on Twitter, and it's also got the most engagement, but the myth is that the experts are right. And I used as an example that there was initially a study written by either PhDs or the top journalists that said 140 million people were going to die from this coronavirus, and there was nothing we could do about it, which was just so ridiculous. At the time when I read that, I think... China, the virus had already pretty much left China and, the, um, you know, you can argue with the data, but the number of deaths were the number of deaths, whatever they were. And it wasn't anywhere near, you know, China's the biggest, popu most populated country on the planet. And I don't know whether it was 3,000 or 10,000 or 100,000, it did not indicate that 140 million people would, would die. So, and, and again, a lot of people, there's been so many models, like there was one model that came out of uh, the University of Washington, which on March 25th, it predicted that by April 1st, there would be 60,000 hospitalizations in New York City. So April 1st came, just six days later, there were 12,000 hospitalizations. And so this model that was just made six days earlier was 80% off. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying they're stupid, but don't, oh, some of these, a lot of these experts, they're really good they have depth. They're really good at their narrow lane. They really know how to study what it is they've been studying for the past 20 years. But they don't, it, you know, the people making these models didn't understand that policy that would affect billions on the economy, decisions were going to be made on the basis of these models. So you couldn't do just a worst case scenario. You had to really think and study and test and experiment. And we still haven't really done that. We still haven't taken a step back and asked ourselves, and we never will. We're, nobody's going to say, you know, we didn't make every decision correctly, so let's take a step back, see what we did wrong, so we can make better decisions next time. No one's going to say that because they're all going to say, well, the experts told me this. And uh, either I was right and the experts were right, or I was wrong because the experts were wrong. But every, everyone's going to say they're the winner coming out of this and that all the correct decisions, you know, oh, you know, thank God they're, if, Good thing we did social distancing or else there would be 140 million deaths. So now, if you say that, though, people will say, what, are you against social distancing? No, I didn't say that. I'm just saying you can't draw conclusions because there's no control group. It's not. A, this wasn't a scientific experiment. This was a guess. And we don't know what would have happened. We have no clue. But it is clear, just common sense, that if everybody locked themselves individually in a closet for three weeks, the entire virus would have been eliminated on the planet because it wouldn't have been able to infect anybody. Mm -hmm. And it's also clear that if everybody was in one giant Rolling Stones concert for the entire time, probably everyone at the concert, all 7 billion people at the concert, would have been infected. So those are the two extremes. Somewhere in the middle is the right amount of isolating and masks and gloves and businesses shut down. Somewhere in the middle. But we have no clue and you can't you can't say you know because we don't know there's no data at all right. but everyone is saying like oh i'd much rather trust the experts than 
than you or you or you. There's no experts in this. No one's ever been through this situation before. And even the mathematical models, you could see some of these people had never done this kind of modeling before. They, you can't have exponential growth in a bounded population forever. It, the, you're limited by the number of people in the population. You're limited by the number of people immune. You're limited by how the virus mutates. The, you're limited by all sorts, you know, the demographics of how the, the virus spreads. Or the health of the people. The health of the people. And also people were saying things like, it, once one rumor died down, people were saying, oh, six feet isn't enough social distancing. The virus can, can float 27 feet. And no, I don't think a single person got infected, but we don't know. I doubt anybody got infected because someone coughed and 27 feet away, another person got infected. Maybe somebody got infected that way, but there, there has been research done actually by your brother-in-law at Imperial College where he's, instead of just being public and coming up with all sorts of science fiction numbers and models, he did this research on mice, which showed that the more a mouse was exposed to to another mouse with the virus, the worse symptoms they would get. So, yeah, the, so the more you were, the more another mouse virally shed on you, the more likely you were to get infected and the more likely you were to have uh, severe symptoms. So that was interesting that research. Sense, right? And that is the sort of research which starts to suggest policy. Because, oh, if I'm not going to be infected by somebody 20 feet away, and by the way, that makes sense. If you look at all the clusters that started, it was all people on like a cruise line heavily exposed to each other, or people who were at weddings heavily exposed to each other, or people in a densely populated city like Wuhan or New York City, like the subways here, everyone's exposed to each other and, 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 and virally shedding all, I'm sick of saying virally shedding. I never right. said this word in my life. But all these people were like exposed to each other and, and shed, shedding on each other. And then you, you can start to think about how to build policy around this. But to use the word experts so early in the game and use that to make policy that affects billions of dollars and then to shame other people for maybe saying, you know what, maybe something in between would have been, had the same number of illnesses, but would have had 20 million less people unemployed, maybe we should look at that because there is what's has been pointed out to me, there is something called collateral fatalities. If you shut down, because we did the policy we did, fewer people will die of coronavirus, but many more people will die of cancer, heart attacks, strokes, because they're not being treated as well in hospitals right now. Many people will die from the consequences of shutting down the economy. And we don't know the answer. This is one of those giant areas where we don't know. And so to call yourself an expert is like me calling myself a brain surgeon. We just don't know. And I don't know. I Don't let me cut into your brain. I wouldn't do a good job at it. I already stated why the areas where I think I'm an expert and it's still not enough. You know, I've been a professional investor through all of these world crisis points. I've been uh, a, a regular writer about translating the complexity of different situations into layman's terms. I've done this for 20 years, both in writing and on TV and in talks, and no one's an expert. I could say I'm not really an expert at dealing with the situation either. We're all doing our best. And even things that I'm saying, research for yourself, learn, use it as an opportunity if you want to learn about these things or listen to me. But then you have to also assume I could be wrong. And all these experts, 
We've seen so many experts that are wrong in the past few weeks and never admit it. So, oh, the projections went from 140 million to only 28,000. So I guess they, we pat ourselves on the back. It worked. Good thing we had gave our projections that everyone's just, there's no way to prove anything. So um, I'm disgusted with the whole expert thing. And my final myth is money solves all of your money problems. Because it's so clear right now, nobody, you can't even spend money if you had it. What are you spending money on? What's the single thing you bought other than food in this past month? Toilet paper. Really? <laughs> you Oh, at the beginning. By the way, by the way, one conversation we did have, you were like, you know, I was, t I was in one of my more anxious modes and I was saying like, if this, this, and this happens, we could be, no one's going to have any privacy. You're going to have to like make an appointment to stand in line at the grocery store. Police are going to come to your house every day and take your temperature. And, and, and you were saying, oh no, that can never happen in our society. We prize freedom too much. But look at what happened just a month ago in our society. In Trader Joe's, just down the street, Trader Joe's is a high-end grocery store. And, you know, the Upper West Side is made up of all these, you know, uh, you know, intellectuals or whatever you want to call it. And Trader Joe's, two people were on the ground fist fighting over a roll of toilet paper. Like two people probably with PhDs were on the ground fighting over a roll of toilet paper. So people in, in such uncertainty, people will regress to the, the basis for toilet paper. Just, I don't know. You know. There's so many other things that I don't know. I would have thought about, but the toilet paper, I, I, I just, you know, you could think of one of those tired wired things like tired is money wired toilet paper. <laughs> That's more useful. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I think that's in a, in a lot of areas, but, um, uh, uh, you know, it just goes to show you that now somebody did respond to me and said, oh, well, doesn't money solve your money problems? I used to think that too, until I had money and I realized I had more money problems because oh, for sure. I would money not know, I, I would not understand all the nuances with, you know, saving it and taxes and that I won't, you know, I don't know. I've, I mean, I've gone broke so many times that. I I certainly was a much happier person in the early 90s when I had zero money and I would go home from work and go to the local Greek pool hall and play backgammon with all the other guys there. And No, was... with money, you have to have, you know, you have to have responsibility. So you had to be responsible with it. Yeah, so and I, I was thinking a little bit about... Um, this tired wired concept. So tired money, wired toilet paper. So uh, uh, tired climate change. Or no, 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 sorry. Tired carbon footprint. What would the wired, what would be a wired version? So I put down uh, viral shedding. So instead of everyone talking about what's your carbon footprint, now it's like, how much, how are you viral? Are you viral, viral shedding? Load? Yeah, wear a mask. <laughs> you might be you might be viral shedding when you're asymptomatic. Asymptomatic is like another word now. Like that, I have never said that word before in my life. And now it's like every day, at least 20 times I'm saying, well, he probably is asymptomatic. I had it, but I was asymptomatic. <laughs> you didn't have it. You're a loser. So, okay. Tired destination weddings, wired Zoom divorces. I think oh, that would be so yeah. cool if we can zoom into a courtroom and watch a divorce. Oh my God. And destination weddings, who wants to go to a destination wedding anymore? Well, you can zoom into it now. 
What's that? That's good. Yeah, yeah. You can have a Zoom wedding. Right. You know, wedding. I don't even want to go to a wedding. I want to. I'd be much more interested in watching a divorce. So that's that's sort of like Let's the news. Everyone wants to watch the bad stuff and not the good stuff. Wait, when we were kids, did we? Wasn't there a TV show, Divorce Court? I don't I'm, know. Hold on. TV show. Divorce court. I'm going to use. I don't know. I, I, because, I because, because in our society, we have no memory anymore. I don't remember <laughs> either. I'm going to just use. Google. Yeah. Divorce court was a TV show. Uh, in 19, first episode was in 1957. Wow. How many seasons did it go? The Fox Broadcasting Company. Uh, uh, oh, and there was. What? There was season 20. It's still going. <laughs> season 21, episode 132, Phillips versus Threeman. It aired April 6th. How's that possible? Wow. Yeah. Najee says her live-in boyfriend, Douglas, is envious of her success in her music career and is always hitting on random women through social media. He says she is controlling and nosy and doesn't help him with his career. Air date, April 6, 2020. Next episode... Buffington versus Sanders. Is that Bernie Sanders getting a divorce? Wow, that's crazy. So maybe Zoom yeah, maybe Zoom that. doors are a thing. Okay, uh, tired Kamala Harris, wired Kamala Harris. <laughs> because now so she's the front runner on Predicted.org to be um, Biden's VP candidate. Wow, so, that's interesting. Who do you think should be? Do you, do you have an opinion on who should be Biden's VP I'm, candidate? I... I'm not gonna say anything. If Michelle Obama was Biden's VP candidate, I think I think that would give him the best yeah, chance. Yeah, she's really cool. That would probably propel him to the top. Who knows? I mean, the problem is he's like, okay, I'm not gonna get into politics, and I'm not gonna get into more tires and wires. I'll leave you with this: tired, the crown, and post on Twitter. I'm at Jay Altucher. If tired is the TV show, the crown. What is wired right now? Send send us your answer. I'm Jay Altucher at Twitter. You're R Altucher, right? Yeah. I think my mom used to be R Altucher, but now she's off Twitter. Now you're R Altucher. Yeah. What's your middle name? Samuels. That's that was your last yeah, yeah. married name. Mm -hmm. I don't. That's I'm I'm not talking about that. What's what's your, do you have a middle name? Not that I'm gonna tell you. Really? You, I don't. You have a middle name. You haven't told me. We've been married like a year and a half. You haven't told me. I've told you, but I'm not going to tell everybody. Why? It's your name. I don't know. Because it's uh, there's some things I just want to just keep Just keep myself. private? All right. Like your name? All right. It's yeah. fine. Uh, that's like Rumpelstiltskin wanted to keep his name private. Now, <laughs> it's, it's really kind of was a prophetic sort of fair, grim fairy tale. Uh, so that's <laughs> this podcast, 13 Myths. Okay. I'm going to tell you my middle. No, What's your middle? It was Raylene. Raylene? Yes. What kind? Of, what the hell kind of name is that? See, that's why I was. Is that like some sort of? What is that? What is Raylene? Where does it come from? Because my father's name was Raymond. Okay, and your mom's name was Eileen. No, <laughs> no, I don't know why. We have to ask my mom why she named me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, where's your phone? Get oh, we're videotaping. <laughs> Get her on the phone right now. Zoom her. Uh, so, all right. Well, this was thirteen myths about coronavirus. Share your myths uh, if you have them, any extra ones. We also talked about how the two major themes of the new normal are going to be the words remote and the word accelerated. And we also talked about, kind of had a little bit of 
an economic and history lesson about unemployment and the Great Depression and how these numbers might not mean what they normally mean. This time things are a little bit different. And let us know if you like this episode. Uh, I really enjoy this episode, doing these episodes with Robin, and I enjoy sometimes not having on somebody that I'm interviewing because these are also areas where I've put, you know, a lot of effort into, and I want to sometimes express myself. I know. I love it too. It's fun. Thanks for, for joining me, and thanks for listening. <laughs>